In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, this is part 2 of that particular part of the messages that we're doing on the book of the Revelation. This is the seven churches of Asia Minor. What is now? Now our text verses, as always, are going to be coming from the NIV this morning. And we're going to have three text verses. And they're all coming out of chapter 1. I know we're preaching on chapter 2, but these are coming out of chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, verse 16, and verse 20 is our text verses. If you don't have an NIV, they're going to be right up here on this screen. Verse 13 starts our message this morning and says, And, look at here, among the lampstands. Now that may not mean anything to you, but that is incredibly important. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That is massively important. Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, let's move on to verse 16, the second verse in our text verses this morning. It says right here, in his right hand he held seven stars. Just like someone like the Son of Man being among the lampstands, the fact that that someone has in his right hand seven stars, that's equally as important. It is vital. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I was really, really young, and I heard that those references to the sharp, two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth, I tried to imagine Jesus on a horse with this thing. I, I, I thought, Surely he's cutting the head of that horse off. Surely, you know, anything in front of him. is. In reality, that sharp two-edged sword is really addressing what he is saying. Do you remember James 1? What the Bible talks about in James 1? That the Word of God is like a sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Yeah, that's what this does when wielded properly. And that's what's happening here. But in his right hand he held seven stars. Incredibly important. Let's move to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, this is Jesus talking now, that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's why those other two verses, those statements in there were so important. Because what we have is a definitive statement by the Lord Jesus Christ. The stars, those are the angels of the churches. The lampstands, those are the churches. That's why this is so important to... to. Um, to pay attention to when you're delving in to chapters 2 and 3 
of the revelation. You have to know these things. He's got seven stars in his hand, and he's among the lampstands. The stars are the angels of the churches, and the lampstands are the churches. He's among the churches, and he's holding their angels. Now, I'm going to say this again next week, because I think that this needs clarification. The Greek word for the word angels, that we render angels here, can mean angel, like you're thinking of. But it can also mean messenger. And by implication, if you read the seven letters, you'll recognize that these are not winged angels like you're imagining. These angel messengers are actually the shepherds of the churches. He's among the churches. He's holding the messengers. That stuff is important. Really important. Now... Let's move forward. I find it interesting, quite frankly, that of all the chapters of the Bible, the second and third chapters of the Revelation, the two chapters whose specific focus is on seven churches, and by extension, the church of Jesus Christ, have historically received such little attention. Not to mention such little understanding. Sice wrote, quote, In the Church of England, Archbishop Trench remarks that it is impossible if the canons of the church are followed for these epistles to ever be read in the public services. In other words, Archbishop Trench of the Church of England is essentially saying that it is impossible for chapters 2 and 3 to ever find their way into being read in the services of the Church of England. Never. Now, keep in mind that Sice's book, which is entitled The Apocalypse, was first published in 1900. That's a piece down the road. And that Archbishop Trench's exact statements were made over 100 years ago. What he said exactly, now remember, what I just read to you, Sice was referring to Trench's statement. This, what I'm about to read to you, is Archbishop Trench's statement. Listen to this. Quote, it is very much to be regretted that while every chapter of every other book of the New Testament is set forth to be read in the church. And wherever there is a daily service is to be read in the church three times in a year and some or portions of some more often. While even of the apocalypse, meaning the revelation, while even of the apocalypse itself Two chapters and portions of others have been admitted into the service under, listen, no circumstances whatever can the second and third chapters ever be heard in the congregation, end quote. Did everybody get that? 
It's like Revelation chapters 2 and 3 have COVID. And instead of wearing a mask, how you deal with it is just keep them out of the church altogether. Are we to assume then that the second and third chapters of the Revelation are to be disregarded and ignored based on such statements? Are we to assume this? After all, who are we who are we to argue with the Church of England? Sarcasm intended. If yes, if we're to assume that chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation are to be disregarded and ignored, if yes, then why are these chapters included in the canon of Scripture? And if no, then the question begs, why are the seven churches relevant? And how do they apply to me, the 21st century Christian? I believe, now you have to remember something here about those quotes. Archbishop Trench was not in favor of what he was saying. He was saying that because of the way the Church of England is set up, they will never be read under any circumstances. Trench was not in favor of that. Okay? But here we are holding this, this canon of Scripture. And we're to assume that Every book with every verse can be read in church. And every book of the New Testament is read in the Church of England as many as three times a year, sometimes more. But these two chapters will and can never be under any circumstances read in the church. And here we hold this canon and we read everything, but we can't preach on that. Well, Gary, you and I are in trouble. <laughs> Let's stay in trouble. Gary's been weeks on chapters 2 and 3. He's going to hell, I can tell. And I'm going to spend at least three, one last week, this week, and one night. I'm just going into a cooler hell, I guess. I don't know. So why are the churches relevant? Why are these seven relevant? And what do these seven churches have anything to do with you and me, 21st century Christians? To which I would reply, very, very good question. In order, right now, we're about to get very, very, very specific. In order to gain the proper understanding of the contents when reading chapters 2 and 3. Because our goal is understanding and enlightenment, right? So that once we acquire this word, once it's been brought into our hearts and our lives, that whatever its point is, we can apply this to our lives and then move forward in our Christianity, right? Okay, in order to gain the proper understanding of their contents when reading chapters 2 and 3, one must 
must read them within the context and within the framework of what has already been revealed to us about the heart of God God regarding his churches in chapter 1. Who just followed me? And who's lost as a goose? Okay, no geese in here. Good. We have to take what we've learned about God and His position, His heart, regarding His churches in chapter 1. We have to carry that into chapters 2 and 3, or we will never get the full meaning. We can learn all kinds of stuff about the seven churches of Asia Minor, but we will never get the fullness unless we carry chapter 1 into chapters 2 and 3. This is imperative. In other words, let me just simplify this if I need to. In order to properly interpret the letters to the seven, we must definitively determine how God views and how God feels about his children. Only then can we properly interpret these seven epistles. Here's the thing. I don't think it's just me. I don't think. Because rarely is anything just me. I think it's just me. Have you ever felt like I'm all alone in this? Just to find out, there's an entire club on the internet dedicated to what was just you. It's probably on Facebook. It may be just me, but I don't think so. The revelation being laid out in its three divisions divisions years ago was weird to me because chapter 1 felt all alone. Chapters 2 and 3 felt like a WWE match where God wins every fight. Just beats the tar out of the seven churches, and then moves on to chapter 4, where he beats the tar out of the world. Okay? That was my interpretation of the book years ago. And they were all separate. It didn't make sense to me that one had anything to do with two and three, and that ultimately two and three had everything to do with the rest of the book. It just didn't work for me. But in order to understand this book, we've got to understand that it's a one cohesive piece. Okay? And that in order to understand chapters 2 and 3, we have to understand how the Lord views and feels about his children. Because if you know how he feels about his children... If you know how he views his children, that means you. Don't think that chapters 2 and 3 are separate from you. They're not. Those were just people too, just like you and me. Why he extracted those seven churches, have no idea. They're not even famous. There were much more famous churches on the planet. 
that he could have chosen. But he didn't. He chose those. They're just folks. And how he feels about you and how you go about your Christianity knowing that he feels about you a particular way, he felt that way about these seven as well. They were just church folk, born-again believers who had real issues. Now, I'm going to ask a question that I expect no one to raise their hand on. How many of you have real issues? Y'all liars. There's your first issue. That's what this is. There's a larger meaning, and we'll get into that next week. But that's how he We have to see how he sees his children. How does he feel about his churches? That's how he approached not chapters 2 and 3. The same way he approaches you. All that gospel, hallelujah, shout stuff that we do. All that is applicable to us. It was applicable to them too. And we need to see that vividly and clearly. Let's review. Since we have to see how God views and feels about His children and His churches. This framework that has been established in chapter 1. This context in chapter 1. Why don't we look at chapter 1 briefly and find out what that context and framework is. Let's go there. These verses, is verse. the ones you're going to want to look at, are verse 1, verses 4 and 5, and verse 11. All those specifically tell us how it is He sees us. Let's look at verse 1. We've been over this a hundred times since I started this, this series. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, and here's the reason why. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, who? Jesus Christ. God gave Jesus Christ the revelation, here's your reason why. To show his servants what must soon take place. What does that mean? If God didn't love us with an immense, immeasurable, uncalculable love, God wouldn't care to give His Son the revelation so that the Son would show His servants what's going to happen. He wouldn't do it. But the reality is, is He does care because the kingdom plan matters and hinges on whether or not these seven do their job. And out of the right spirit. That's the first part of the framework. Right there. That God gave the revelation to Jesus. So that Jesus ultimately would show his servants what must soon take place. How many moms and dads here? Raise your hand. How many of you, whether you have young ones at home still or whether they're grown up and gone, how many of you during your lifetime just kept them in the dark? You didn't tell them anything. You didn't want them to know nothing. You know, you talk to them about going on vacation, right? 
talk to your kids about, okay, we're going to go do this and blah, blah, blah. And this. Now, would you rather do this activity or this excursion? Blah, blah, blah. These guys just got back from Florida, and they went swam with dolphins. I'm not jealous. And if I am, I'll pray through later. No, we inform our children. Dad's going to be changing jobs. So I need you to know that this is what's going to happen, and we may have to change houses or whatever. We inform our children to know what's going to soon come, come to pass. That's what God does. The only reason we have the revelation. Verses 4 and 5. Look at, let's look at the next piece of the framework. We've read this a hundred times too. John, to the seven churches of the, in, the province, in the province of Asia, grace and peace. Verse 4 of the entire book, and God leads by extending his grace and his peace to his people, despite their spiritual condition. Let's move on. And this grace and peace is from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now listen, here we go again. Here's part of this framework. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. There's another part of the framework. Not only does God start by greeting them with his grace and peace, which we've been over, but he also is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be kingdom, a kingdom and priests to serve God and Father. Well, there's, there's more of the framework. This is the context by which we have to move into chapters 2 and 3 from. Now, let's move into the last bit of the framework, verse 11. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven. We've been over this a hundred times, like everything else. He told John in verse 11, which immediately preceded the vision of the glorified Christ, beginning in verse 12, he said, send what you see. To the seven. Send what you see to the seven. So we have God wanting to show his servants what must shortly come to pass. We have God starting the book out with grace and peace being extended to his servants. And the fact that he is the one who loves us, who's delivered us from our sins, and who has made us a kingdom and priests to serve the Father. Then he comes along and tells us that he is wanting the seven to see the vision of who's saying all this. That is the framework from which we have to leave chapter 1 and go into chapters 2 and 3. Because when we do that, we have to go into chapters 2 and 3 with the same heart of God, mindset of God, and the framework of God that He is hopelessly in love with His people and His church. And that is what 2 and 3 reflects. The Bible says that God so loved 
the world that he gave his son. That love that motivated God the Son to be made manifest in the flesh and die on a cross to be resurrected on the third day and ascend to the right hand of God, that is God's motivation when he addresses the seven. We've got to understand that. And then we will grasp what God is doing when he speaks to each one in each of the seven epistles. With these passages, verses 1, 4, 5, and 11 in mind, we can see the heart of God regarding His churches. He wants His servants to know what is going to take place, verse 1. He wants His churches to experience His grace and His peace, not judgment and condemnation, verses 4 and 5. And He wants them to see, to perceive, not only Him, but the events that must shortly come to pass, Verse 11. With that, with that, anything that we read in the second and third chapters must be placed in this context and viewed within this framework. The framework of his unfathomable love for his children and by extension, his church. That is how we read chapters 2 and 3. Ephesians says this, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, listen, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God That's the heart of God for his people. And chapters 2 and 3 are his people. Anybody getting where I'm heading here? Okay, Gary did, and I think one other did. Everybody else has no idea. Now, that we've established this framework. Now that we've established this context... Let's look at what it looks like when the Son of God moves among His candlesticks. Let's look and see what it looks like when He moves among His churches and He holds in His hand His messengers. Let's look and see what that's like. Okay? Now, this is going to get deeply personal for me. So just try to understand, with based on what I have already told you, where we're headed now. I don't know how the Lord speaks to you. I have no idea how the Lord speaks to you. But it has been my long experience that the Lord has a way 
that He speaks to me. He speaks to me in this way. He has a method. He has this approach that He uses. My guess is that He uses this approach so that I, a very simple creature, made from nothing more than dust and breath, can easily recognize Him. And once I've recognized Him, I can go about the business of trying to obey Him. Which, remember, I used to be Catholic. I'm big on confession. Trying to obey Him doesn't always go so well. Right here is where you're supposed to amen because every one of you can relate to that. Oh, it's a little late now. So I try. He uses this way. He has this approach so that I can recognize him. Now, he always comes to me in what I can only describe, and it sounds so cliche, but... I can only describe it as that still, small voice that the Bible talks about. It's quiet, very quiet, nothing like Pentecostal preachers. Wow, that was really tanked. It's nothing like a Pentecostal preacher. He comes in this voice. And I'm sure that that is the voice he came to numerous people in the scriptures with who had never heard his voice before, but said, Lord, thank God, literally, that he has that voice that even though your ear is untrained, he can speak to you and you recognize him. Thank God for that. He comes to me so unobtrusive, so unassuming. He comes to me like a parent, parental, not wanting to frighten me, which he could easily do, seeing that he's God and all. He could easily frighten me by coming to me. But he comes quietly, and he speaks softly, so softly, that if I had not had years of experience in training my spiritual ears to hear him, I'd never know that he wanted my attention and that I was in his presence, that I was in an audience with the Father. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't have the foggiest idea. Any more, though, recognizing the voice of God comes almost instantaneously. Now, that's not because I'm so spiritually mature. That's not it at all. But rather, it's through repetition of hearing him. Because I must be incredibly high maintenance. What with him having to speak to me about me so often. Anybody relate? I'm desperately flawed, brothers and sisters. (laughs) And he is, to my little mind having to work overtime in order to transform me into his image. That's how I perceive the whole thing. 
he usually speaks to me through what Christians call conviction. Convicting me. Impressing upon me what desires he has for me. Not willing to allow me to remain as I am, he convicts me. Offering me direction training me to change my thoughts, training me to change my speech, training me to change my behavior. And more often than not, he uses these images when he speaks to me. These images appear of his written word. And he allows those things to do the talking, to do the impressing, and to do the convicting. Well, with that said... The difference between those personal encounters that I have with the Father, these words from God spoken into me, the difference between those words of God and the seven epistles that were written to the seven churches is this. Those seven epistles actually are the Word of God. Can anybody relate to what I just told you about how he speaks to me? Does he speak to you in any way, shape, or form like that? There may be differences, but it's quiet, it's still, it's not slapping you upside the head, saying, get it right! Can anybody relate? Is it possible that that's how God speaks? And that... Although he speaks to me this way in these personal words, the way he spoke to the seven actually is the word. And then that's how he spoke to them. Revelation 1 and 2 says of John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are the Word of God. And yet so many of us are relating to the fact that God approaches us a particular way. It's Old Testament too. It's not just a dispensation of grace thing. He came in a still, small voice. While there was thunder and earthquakes and all this, He spoke to the prophet in what? A still, small voice. But despite the fact that these seven epistles, that they are the inspired, God-breathed, canonized Word of God, and my impersonal encounters with the Father are not, these seven epistles aren't so different in their intent or their desired outcome for those who occupied the seven churches. Read those this week. You read those seven letters. And you tell me how different they really are. I mean, obviously there's massive historical discrepancies from your life and theirs. Because there's a huge amount of time that has passed. But the essence of how God handles them, see if it doesn't look like how God has handled you. He convicts me, like I said. Have you all ever been convicted? And I mean besides the initial time you were convicted of your sin and you came to Jesus at the altar. Does he ever convict you? He convicts me. 
Guess what? In essence, that's exactly what he was doing to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Convicting them. When God speaks to me, he is seeking to change me. He is seeking to transform me into his image. The image of the Son of God. Complete with his character and his nature. He is seeking to grow me out of myself, out of my bad habits, out of my practices that I have either inherently within me, God, I'm honest, as part of who I am, or those bad practices that I may have picked up along the way so that I can best serve him. He is attempting to extract those things. He is seeking to grow me out of my sinful flesh and grow me into the Spirit. But in his desire to change me, he does so by leading with both grace and peace so as not to frighten me as he approaches me. Look what happened in Revelation 1 and verse 17 if you don't understand what I just meant by that. John says in the first part of that verse, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. How many of you want God to show up in such a way where you just go, Oh, and you're dead. Old Testament. Something similar happened. Well, it didn't result in death. Moses wants to see the glory of God. We all know the story. Moses wants to see the glory of God. God says, okay. But you know, no one can see me and live. Revelation 1.17. So I'm going to hide you in a cleft, in a rock. I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to walk by, and I'm going to let you see the back parts of me as I leave the area. Do you know what the result of that was? We all know the story. Moses' poor physiology did not know what to do with what he saw. The glimpse of God that he saw. His poor physiology had no idea what to do. And it blew up. His hair turned white. His face shone like there was a bulb in his face. It didn't know what to do. And it was... God only knows, literally, how close to death before God left the area. That's what happens when God says, Hi! And you're gone. That's what happens. So what's He do with us? What did He do with the seven He led with grace and peace. And then he told the prophet, you tell them. Sounds like the base of Mount Sinai to me. Moses, you go up. We don't want to see him. We'll die. Well, you're right. He showed the prophet. The prophet showed the people. Yes? (laughs) So... Instead of leading with that incomprehensible vision, 
of the glorified Christ. The Lord chooses a different path. He leads with his grace and his peace. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. That first passage where grace and peace is mentioned is found in verse 4. Verse 4, when he says, grace and peace to you, to the seven churches of Asia, that's the Lord's first foray into addressing the seven churches. That's his first mention of them, showing his heart, giving them grace and peace. And here's the reality. If we are ever to fully understand these letters, and I mean we collectively, we must first understand Him. This is one quiet crowd today. I'm going to, cl- I'm going to close now. We're going to move back to the first part of the message where I asked a question. Why are the seven churches relevant? And how do they apply to me, a 21st century Christian? Although we're going to address the church's relevance and application more next week, their relevance and application in an initial sense lies in how God approaches us. In the same way he approaches the seven in chapters two and three, he approaches us that way with an unfathomable, immeasurable love that refuses to allow us to remain in our flesh and in approaching us, he does so with grace and peace, not condemnation and judgment. When you look at the seven churches of Asia Minor, how many of you, and be honest, how many of you have ever read that and gone, boy, they're a mess. They need some help. No wonder the Lord's bawling them out. Come on. How many of you have ever looked at them and just said, y'all need help? Remember I referenced James chapter 1 a few minutes ago and I talked about the sword, the word of God being a sword? Well, James chapter 1 also refers to the word of God as being a mirror. And when we look at chapters 2 and 3 of the revelation of Jesus Christ and we go, my, 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 if they were at my church, I'd be laying hands on them. Guys, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. And I'm going to get into And I know, Gary, you've probably saturated your hearers with information about this. But have you ever noticed that there's a group of people that, re, that show up more than once in these letters and they were called Nicolaitans? Do you know what one of their biggest issues were? Sexual immorality. 
sexual immorality. Do you realize that as of just a handful of years ago, just a handful of years ago, that the divorce rate in the church matched or was slightly higher than secular, the secular world? How many of you have a computer screen that drifts into places it ought not? How many of you, and now I'm preaching to myself, have a disposition that when something doesn't go right, you can name it at home, at a restaurant, at a grocery store, you tend to take it out on someone verbally, even in a passive-aggressive way. The mirror of the Word of God is looking at us when we look at chapters 2 and 3. And yet, He comes to us with grace and peace. He comes to us wanting us to be in the know. He comes to us having given His life and His blood because of the love He possesses for us, having cleansed us from all unrighteousness and the sins in our lives, and He wants us to function under God the Father as a kingdom in priests. What's the relevance of the seven churches? Oh, they are so relevant. But more on that next week and how it applies to us. Stand with me this morning. God is good. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, we love you so much. You are so good. Lord, we just ask this morning that you would do a thing in us, but for us, really for us. Father, let your word haunt us in the Holy Ghost. Father, let it stay with us. And let it not just, oh, well, we've been to church. Let's go eat and then go about our week never having pondered the eternal Word of God anymore. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' holy name that you would minister, that you would minister to this body of people and that you would minister to anyone that might pick this message up on the Internet. Father, let your Word stay with them, linger in them. Let it let it grasp their attention. And Father, let it take some root and grow. I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. We love you and we praise you. We glorify you. Is there anyone by 